recent years, consumers have become accustomed to the fact that certain firms know more about them than some of their closest family members, where they shop, what type of music they listen to, and what their political opinions are. They've also become accustomed to the fact that these firms can make billions of dollars from this data, while they themselves derive on with no personal benefit. However, the tide of public opinion is changing, and what once may have seemed innocent a decade ago is drawing intense public criticism across the political spectrum. Consumers and regulators alike are now backing movements that would give consumers more power over, and even potential to profit from, their own data. To further explore this issue, I was joined by Anne Josephine Flanagan, Data Policy and Governance Lead at the World Economic Forum. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Anne. Hi, Will. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Now, I really appreciate anyone that can actually make the time to come join us to talk. So just to jump straight into the questions, what would you recommend to the uh, average person who wants to gain a fuller understanding of their data rights and how their data is used for private organizations? Great question, Will. Really, really tough one to start out on. There are, I think, a couple of things that people may or may not be aware of. This problem obviously is not a new one. We've had various forms of data protection or data privacy, as they call it over here in the United States, for a number of different years. It's not a new area per se. What has really changed is that a lot of those laws have their roots in sort of 1990s policy, where your internet was something that you had in the corner of your living room and you dialed up and you spent, I don't know, a couple of hours a night on it. It wasn't necessarily something that you were, and certainly when it comes to your personal data, it wasn't something that you were using ubiquitously. Obviously, our world has completely shifted in those 30 years. We all know what happened over the last 18 months during the pandemic. We all kind of went online or we we lost our minds a little bit, maybe lost our minds anyway. Um, but really the scale and the ubiquity of data collection and data processing and the amount of data that, that's handed over by us on a day-to-day basis is really, really, really staggering. Um, and those laws and those frameworks that were designed back then Although some of them have been updated, you think here about the GDPR and over here in this part of the world, the California Consumer Privacy Act, they just can't quite keep up with that reality that we face on a day-to-day basis. Um, I always loved this statistic by uh, Professor Laurie Craner from Carnegie Mellon University. She did some research a few years ago, and it is out of date already. And she surmised that it would take the average person 76 business days a year if they were to actually take the time to read all of those privacy policies that we see popping up on our screens every time we go online. And that's just the stuff that's served to us online. Think about the data that's being collected about us by CCTV cameras when we walk down the street and the fact that there is social media information flying around about you that your friends are sharing. And it really is a just a, a really huge, huge, huge problem. So for consumers to begin to understand it, that is a good place to start. But the way a lot of frameworks are written right now, they do really put maybe too much of an onus on people to understand that situation and to be able to consent to the use of their data. I know a lot about this area and even I would find it really, really challenging to fully read and fully understand and grasp what a privacy policy really means. So it's a really, really intractable problem and a huge challenge. It's a whole issue of consent without understanding, I find to be a really difficult one because you wouldn't expect people under the age of 18 to be able to drink alcohol because they're not considered to be developed enough to really understand the implications of what these things can do to them. They're expected to consent to the use of their data by large 
tech companies based in the US who are massively complex, it assumes a level of understanding, which is just not possible for someone under the 18 or someone who hasn't actually studied the topic to really understand. So it's can someone really consent to something which they don't understand? Could I consent to taking a drug when I have no idea of its effects? It's, it's just a minefield to me. This is exactly it. And not just big tech company, any kind of tech company, even our shops on the corner these days have a presence on the web. So there's information being gathered about you by all different kinds of parties all of the time. And you're expected to keep up and stay on your toes. Now, there is good reason for that. I mean, when you look at how these regulations have been put together, they have good ideals in mind. It's the idea of giving consumers control, giving people choice, respecting people's agency, respecting people's rights. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. What was really interesting was that in the GDPR, and this was quite controversial, there are other grounds beyond consent for the collection and processing of personal data. I can think of one here called legitimate interest, where if you have an entity that can prove uh, to a data protection authority that they have a legitimate interest in processing your data, they don't really need to ask you. Um, there are some really obvious ones around vital interest, which is literally if your life is in danger, your doctor can take steps to save your life. Of course they can. But by and large, companies don't want to take the risk of using grounds beyond notice and consent, which is the, the official terminology for it. They don't want to take the risk beyond that because the data protection authorities are holding or at least aiming to hold companies to a high level of accountability. And there's just too much risk in them having to prove it. They'd rather say, we gave this consumer a contract, the consumer read the terms and conditions, and they accepted them. And that's a really dissatisfactory space for, for everybody to be in. So um, just to move on to a pretty big elephant in the room and one which, to be honest, is maybe not an easy answer for, what steps can governments and or regulators take to improve and to enforce the data rights of citizens? Yeah, this is a great question. I think the government and the regulators have quite different roles to play here. So governments are the ones that are co-legislating on things like GDPR or the Data Act or any kind of data protection legislation, wherever you are in the world, it's really the government that is behind what that says. Then you're looking at how is that actually implemented? And that's the regulator's job. And in most countries, that regulator is an independent national authority, and they should really just be looking at how do you enforce this law? How do you stay in line with it? And what we're seeing is that this was a big problem when the GDPR came out in 2018. So you had this huge law that was going to affect pretty much every company in the European Union, at least. And, and of course, in the UK at the time, that was was going to be processing data and many cases companies outside of the European Union because of that extraordinary reach of the GDPR and what ended up happening was that the law hit the ground and companies had so many different types of business models because we had so many different types of stakeholders and that guidance that gap emerged as to how companies were expected to implement that law and that guidance came in time and it's still coming even now, three years later, that guidance is still coming along because the reality is that when you legislate at a principles level and you don't necessarily allow for different cases, you can get ambiguity in terms of how that law is implemented and ambiguity in terms of how that law is enforced. So differences in enforcement, for example, is something that we've seen emerge lately. It's also not an issue that's unique to data protection per se. So one of the really interesting things about technology policy right now is that 
technology used to be this niche thing, right? It used to be this thing that we used here and there. And I think it's fair to say that technology runs right across every industry now. Most facets of our lives involve technology. So what's gone from policy that was in a really, really niche area has become this thing that just matters to all people. It matters to all companies. And it really is a case of trying to boil the ocean. As for what governments and regulators can do in terms of bridging that gap between how law is made and how law is actually implemented, a couple of really positive things have happened. I think the first thing that's happened is that governments have started to listen to companies. And I don't mean lobbying. I mean, literally trying to understand how these new business models work, how these new business models that involve so much data work. And we are seeing a lot more nuance, particularly around the new proposals that have been coming out in the United States and in Europe in the last few years. The UK's own information commissioner has proposed an update to uh, some of those laws to make them more nuanced and more fit for purpose. So what can consumers do? It's very challenging for consumers to understand this space. A good source of information is potentially their local data protection office. So in the UK, that is the ICO. And in other countries, that's the relevant data protection authorities. In the United States, that would be the FTC. But really, whoever that regulator is, they are independent and they are supposed to be trying to bridge that gap between what the law says, how companies are behaving and the rights of consumers. And it's so difficult as well when it comes to tech regulation, because, for example, in, say, criminal law, this can be developed over decades and centuries because you've got hundreds of years of cases in which to base and develop these on and which to inform regulators. Whereas for tech, we've got a base policy on a very short window of experience, perhaps years, in fact, maybe just even months. For example, uh, not to move on from a completely unrelated topic, but something like NFTs or non-fungible tokens, uh, which some of our listeners might be aware of. It's a concept which is practically unknown until several months ago, and is now raising some pretty vast uh, questions for legislators and lawyers all over the world in a variety of different fields. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you brought up the topic of NFTs. These non-fungible tokens are reliant on blockchain. So the superpower of blockchain is, in theory, at least once it's on the chain, it's on the chain and you have a permanent record of what happened. So artists have really leaned into this concept so you can have digital art now. And that's a great example of where you have like, wow, how would you even begin to decide the rules around how that whole thing works? Because you have copyright and of course you have the data that's being used and you have the security and then you think about, okay, well, how do I make sure that this is recognized and how do I figure out how to maybe tax that? And it just, it brings together all of these different areas in a way that has never happened before. That's actually a really good analogy for how we can start to think about the data ecosystem. So what originally have been a really heavy focus on data protection. So the idea that you have a right to have your data protected and you have a right to know what's happening and to have control of that is just one area of how we really need to start looking at the data ecosystem because the data ecosystem is effectively, it's almost like the matrix, if you will. It's our alternative universe where we do business and we call our friends and we call our parents and we pull up our maps and we have our CCTV on us and our cars are tracked in traffic and um, we book our flights and just how we engage with the internet. We have a sort of a, an alternate universe or I hate this term but cyberspace that we live in 
how do you start to think about that at a systemic level if you're just looking at it through the lens of what's now relatively outdated policy on data protection and privacy it doesn't take account for all of the different scenarios where you really are interacting with that system where you could potentially experience harm and certain things can happen around you it really is a space where policymaking just needs to get a lot more sophisticated and the policies and the governance mechanisms that companies are using and how they start to look at ethical behavior needs to also get a lot more sophisticated because it's not just from one angle, it's really the system that we exist in. And to draw another parallel that might be helpful for people, think about how economies are managed. It's not just about the money, it's about the workforce and it's about the geography and it's about wage levels and it's it's about company models and competition. So if you can draw sort of a parallel universe from our, our economic world to our, the data ecosystem that we exist in, or our, our matrix, if you will, start to grasp how complex this area is. But NFTs are a great example of just one thing within that system that when you start to think about that specifically, you need to take into account so many different angles. And when you think about how governments are put together, there are different ministries that are looking at very specific things. It needs more holistic thinking, it needs more systemic thinking, it needs governments learning from how technology actually works, it needs companies being more forthright about how technology works. And it's not just technology companies anymore, it's every kind of company. And people are becoming much more vocal as well about what they want. So systemic change is definitely, I think we're, we're in the eye of the storm right now, it's going to be really interesting to see what plays out. So another difficult question. To what, if any extent, can big tech be expected to police itself? This is a great question and a really interesting one. I think we're seeing the biggest companies in the world or most of the biggest companies in the world now are technology companies. That was not the case 10 years ago. You're re really looking at banks and holding companies that were the largest companies. And it's posed a few interesting dilemmas because tech companies are involved in more than tech, right? It goes back to the point that you see all of these different areas intersecting. So without naming any companies, you see companies that might be involved in social media. They might also be involved in commerce. They might also be involved in providing content. They might also be involved in some sort of payments. I mean, there are, there are so many different models um, and I think it's a really interesting space right now. Can big tech regulate itself? I think that kind of goes back to a more philosophical question of what is the role of government? <clears throat> what is the role of business and where do they meet in the middle? And if you think about it from a what we call a human centric lens, so putting people first, you probably need a combination of both. You probably need a situation where you have really good legislation, really clear legislation that protects people's rights, protects people's interests, also protects companies' rights and companies' interests. What can companies do? Falling shy of self-regulation, which is a really, really controversial concept, it is not a secret that there are better behaved companies and worse behaved companies. This is not something that just applies to big tech. We've seen for many years the idea of corporate social responsibility. ESG is the new hot name on the block. And I think we are going to see a trend of potentially government holding companies accountable to their ESG practices and time. But we all know that I think as consumers, we are, if the price is the same, we're happier to give uh, our money to companies with that feel good factor if you will. So it's a really interesting one. Um, can they ever regulate themselves? Possibly. Should they be able to? Highly questionable. Yeah, and it's something which I'm convinced is going to be a huge dilemma for this to come. I mean, the old adage that power corrupts is a 
at least to some extent, probably true. I mean, Google probably knows a lot of things about me, which I myself don't even know. And when you really look into the album, stuff that none of my friends, my family would know about my tastes, about my choices, about the time of day at which I do things. And it's kind of scary in the amount of, not that I would think these companies would abuse this, but it's just the fact they have the scope to if they chose to. Yeah, I think that goes. I think that goes for any anyone who has information about you is potentially a scary place for you to be as a person because information can be misused. It can be used for harm. It can be used for good, but it it can be used for harm. I personally am much more worried about uh, a neighbor that has a CCTV camera and knows every time of day or night that I'm coming home and going to work. That I feel personally that that's a threat to my personal security. Whereas if I go online, maybe I'm getting ads served for, I don't know, clothes or holidays or whatever that are a little bit spookily too close to the bone. But it comes back at the end to what are the rules of the game and, and how can that data be used? And it it is going to require a combination of there need to be good rules in place, um, as, as in good regulations in place. But also consumers have started to hold companies more accountable for better behavior. Like I just mentioned, companies that are behaving better are rewarded in terms of customers. So I think we're really moving beyond the era of privacy and profitability being concepts that seem to be mutually exclusive or seem to be opposed. Companies that behave well, and we don't just see this in tech, we see it in um, companies that are uh, interested in, for example, reducing carbon emissions are rewarded with higher customers. So customers have an enormous amount of power here. The idea that we feel so out of control is is really a difficult one that we all have to grasp with. And it's probably not an acceptable position for us to be in either as consumers. That's an excellent point, which you've just highlighted. A lot of the uh, power which these companies hold is in fact merely a factor of consumer choice. It's not like a company like Shell or Exxon with vast amounts of physical infrastructure and land, for example, it's merely that consumers are choosing to use these platforms because of the services they provide. Ultimately, the tide of public opinion does change, which it could well continue to do, and perhaps has done within the last 10 years. Uh, perhaps the power is not as great as it might initially seem. Yeah, consumers are very savvy and companies that realize that do a lot better than the ones that don't recognize that. Everyone is a consumer. And I think this is something that gets overlooked. It's really like it's it's logically really obvious, right? Everyone is a consumer of something. These companies are composed, and I say these companies, I'm not just talking about tech companies, any companies, companies are composed of consumers. So I think it goes down to good business practices, ethical business practices, and that really makes a huge difference. There is, of course, a communication gap as well. And this goes down to what we started out this podcast on, which is around the notice and consent dilemma. Maybe you're engaging with the most ethical and amazing company in the world and they're doing fantastic things. Maybe they're reusing your data for cancer research. <laughs> Maybe that's in the terms and conditions somewhere. But how on earth would you ever start to know? So there's a lot that companies can do in terms of closing that information gap in other ways. And I think we're starting, we're starting to see that as well. Um, the other thing that has happened, of course, is that as technology and as data has become more interwoven in our lives, we just have learned a lot more as people we understand it a lot better so I think that we all have a rough idea of how things work I think where things start to get spooky is this 
opacity once your data enters the system. I think it's the reuse of data that can be very, very challenging. It can be very challenging for everybody, even at a, at a B2B level, that's a really difficult space contractually speaking. At a government level, how do you, how do you start to trace data through the value chain? And you mentioned it already about the, about the size of companies. We're starting to see new levers be used around competition law and competition policy. So you can begin to realize how complex and evolving this space is because we're starting to see all of these different policy areas merging. I almost compare it to if anybody on this call has ever written a thesis, you start out with this amazing idea and the more you research, the more confusing it becomes. And then at some point in time, there is a breakthrough and you get back on track and you're able to answer the question that you started out asking. But I feel that we're very much in the, in the confusion phase right now, but slowly some pieces are starting to fall into place um, around bridging that gap and around um, just educating people as to how important this is and how people do need to hold companies accountable. One other point I want to mention, and you mentioned it yourself, Will, as well, I think when you were talking about, um, about the petrol and the gas companies, ultimately, we would not use any company or any service if it didn't enhance our lives in some way. So we're getting value. And I think a really interesting question to ask is what does that trade-off look like? What are we trading in exchange for value when we're engaging with services that are essentially or at least nominally free? So what do you think needs to happen for consumers to get more control over their data? On the one hand, consumers need to be educated. There's no question about that. But on the other hand, the burden of that education can't be too high. So if we go back to that, that paradigm, if we go to the website and we have the terms and conditions that pop up, we're like, yeah, 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 cool. They shouldn't be 40 pages long. They should maybe be very, very short, or maybe there are other ways of doing things. One thing that's really interesting and is emerging is how technology can help to bridge that education gap. So I'm sure we all have our favorite websites that we visit 20 times a day. Maybe it's not a website. Maybe it's an app on our phone. Maybe it's 50 times a day, 100 times a day. We don't tend to need to reconsent every single time because we've already consented in the first place. Now there's a whole other conversation about whether we understood what we were consenting to in the first place. But let's imagine that we did understand in the first place. So one time you understand everything that you're, that you're interacting with. You take the time to understand it. The messaging is provided in a much more clear manner. And maybe those permissions or those preferences carry with you. So we are at the stage where we are effectively traceable um, in most data ecosystems. What if we could get to the point where your pre-consented preferences could follow you around? That's a really interesting place to be because that would mean that you would have basically put out your sort of your red line. So maybe I'm like, let's just, like if we take it back a level, maybe it's like, okay, I'm totally fine for this service to take my data and to serve me ads. That's fine. I don't mind that. I'm a little bit less happy about them combining that data with that of my spouse or my extended family. They can start to determine habits about my children or our lifestyle. I'm going to say no to that. Maybe there's some really interesting traffic information on my GPS that will actually help the urban planners to, to build better roads and put better facilities in place for the community. Yeah, I'm fine with that and so on and so forth. So you start to see this, this picture of somebody's individual preferences, individual tendencies. I mean, we all know as human beings instinctively when we're in situations, what feels right and what feels wrong. How could we level that up to match this technology that we are interacting with? Um, I did a fast 
fascinating piece of work last year with Dr. Jennifer King in uh, the Stanford Center for Internet and Society. She's since moved on to the AI team there. So shout out to Jen in case she's listening. And that was a that was a piece of work where we really tried to step back and say, how can we look at this and, and start to improve this space? And we had an amazing community of stakeholders from all around the world. And there were people from businesses, governments, academics, civil society people. And we had this amazing two-day hackathon in our office in San Francisco. This is pre-COVID, obviously, back in back in 2019. Good old days when you could get catering in. And out of that two-day hack, we got probably did about a year's worth of work going down into a bit more detail. The, the work is called Redesigning data privacy if anyone's interested in looking at it and we tried to build out different solutions around what would be alternatives to this space and this was really the one that that stood out which is the idea of you could maybe pre-consent and then you almost have like a, a bot that follows you around or like a digital agent that's going to go wherever you go online wherever you go in this this data ecosystem that we all interact with on a day-to-day -day basis and we're still working on this issue. We now have a, we call it the task force on data intermediaries, but technology should be in a space to allow that to happen in five or 10 years time. And I think it goes down to the will. Would the will be there to support consumers on that journey? We haven't found very many reasons why that wouldn't happen. It's a bit of a win-win for everybody. So I think we have this vision in our mind of, you know, companies are the bad guys and they want the data at all costs. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not true. By and large, companies just want to have the data that they have lawfully, because if that data is not lawfully obtained, that's a huge risk for them. So if you can get to the situation where a company is able to say, you know what, I'm pretty sure the person that gave me this data understands exactly what I'm going to use it for, has provided me some really clear guidelines on what I can use it for and I cannot use it for. That's a better space for everybody. At the consumer level, we feel like we have control. We feel that we have a level of agency. We feel listened to. And more than feeling that, we do have a level of control. And then at the company level or the organization level, because organizations besides companies use personal data as well, they're in a position where they're able to say, yep, pretty confident that we have this, we've lawfully obtained it, pretty confident that we can use this in a manner that is more ethical than if we hadn't gotten such granular nuanced ideas about what the person is happy for this data to be used for. So that's a really exciting area. We're not there yet, but there isn't really a reason why we couldn't get there eventually. And that honestly is one of the things that gets me up in the morning. Yeah, so I love the idea of companies taking a granular, detailed approach and a really thoughtful approach to using consumer data that relies heavily on consent, but maybe to play devil's advocate. Uh, there is the issue of data breaches, which I, as a tech journalist, face almost weekly, sometimes feels like almost daily. When I give my uh, data to say, I don't want to name any companies, but let's just say... Uh, an airline or a train company, there is always the back of my mind that this may one day fall into the hands of hackers. It may very easily be available on the dark web. I could probably go and buy my own data on whatever the latest equivalent of Silk Road is. I'm not keeping up. So even if we do go into that nitty gritty granular approach to consumer consent, and all of the companies do play ball, there's always going to be that awful semi-demonic cybersecurity element in the room of what happens if the worst comes to the worst and the data isn't even in the hands of these big tech companies. What happens if it's just in the hands of hackers? 
Yeah, that's, that's definitely a really scary space. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a, a retail store over here in the United States about their data breach. And I was like, oh, no. And then I was like, I don't think I've actually ever ordered anything from them. I think it's just a newsletter. So all they would have would be my email address. But it does make you pause to think there are a couple of safeguards in place that companies should be adhering to already. One of those is data minimization. So this idea, if you ever see a form and you have what's your date of birth why are they asking for that? Do they really need to know that? Does a cosmetics company or does your local restaurant really need to know your date of birth? Like, yeah, maybe it's nice for them to acknowledge your birthday, but you should feel very comfortable not giving out that information if you're not comfortable with it. So there is definitely a lot that consumers can do to hold companies accountable for the data that they're handing over in the first place. But also companies should only be collecting the data that they need. Another concept is purpose limitation. Companies shouldn't be using data for anything other than it's required for. So there are these background principles that should reduce the amount of data that's handed over um, or reduce the amount of data that's used. That's just good data hygiene. That's just good privacy engineering. There is a lot of onus on companies to get that right. You did mention cybersecurity, and this, again, is where we see different areas overlapping. So cybersecurity is absolutely fundamental to how data is protected. So cybersecurity is a space that's becoming more and more regulated. But what's really interesting about cybersecurity is everybody has an interest in keeping that data secure. So when data breaches happen, sometimes you have bad actors involved, and sometimes you have state actors involved, but sometimes it's just bad practices. So that's definitely something that really is on the shoulders of companies to, to shoulder. When it comes to what consumers are handing over, consumers should be able to engage with companies that are trusted. And it goes back to how consumers will engage with the companies that they trust and they'll just stop engaging with the ones that they don't. As to what can happen, though, in terms of data breaches, data breaches can be absolutely terrifying and really, really worrying. And particularly in the United States where identity theft is a thing, it can be a very unnerving space to be. So companies really do need to ensure that data is secure, that there is good data hygiene, that they are respecting the principles of data minimization and purpose limitations. So data minimization being only take the data that you need to and purpose minimization be only use it for what you need it for. And that's just good hygiene. That really is what should be happening. That should be happening anyway. That default state should be in place. If there is a data breach, if there is a data protection authority, wherever you are in the world, you can go to that data protection authority and you can make a complaint. In Europe and in the UK, companies do have to notify their data protection authorities of data breaches. That actually should reassure people that this is taken very, very seriously and that there are real disincentives in place for companies to get this wrong. Companies don't want their data shared with their competitors anyway. They have no interest in this happening. So it's definitely a space where everyone is completely in line that data should be secured but it is very unnerving when you as a person find out about a data breach and your information is put out there there is a lot more that could be done here yeah i agree so much it's such a terrifying point that it's normally an easy answer for so i'm sorry for taking the tone of the conversation for a slightly dark place but i think it's important no it's it's really important um and and that that sort of notion of this kind of futuristic version of your digital agent 
maybe your digital agent just pulls down the shutters when they see something is going wrong. Maybe you can secure away that information. There are so many different techniques that technology now allows for. If you think about how um, payments are processed by banking, the financial system is hyper secure. You very rarely hear about breaches in the financial system. Um, when you're looking at blockchain technology, blockchain has some really interesting techniques that could potentially combine with something like this to really just just pull down the gates. You also don't need to necessarily see the data to be able to use the data. And by that, I mean that sometimes it's not the raw data that anyone's interested in at all. If you think of AI, for example, how AI is developed, AI is you have a data set and you have an algorithm that runs on that data set and you have machine learning. And then there is a system built and a, an outcome built and that algorithm um, continues to improve. Whoever holds that algorithm, they're not interested in what any individual byte of data sets. They're not interested in any individual record. They're interested in what that AI can learn from that data set. So there are different techniques that can be used to shield the data so that you're just seeing the insights. You also can have situations where um, you have new models like federated learning, whereby you have the um, algorithm that's traveling to the data, takes what it needs and then leaves again. So the data remains secure. So technology really is the key to improving this space. But companies in the meantime and any organization, not just companies, governments, any of us should be keeping data secure if it is sensitive or personal in nature whatsoever. Yeah, data security is I think going to be a defining topic of our age and it's something we've definitely not seen the last of. Uh, I think the worst is that to come in terms of data breaches and I think I'm really interested in seeing how emerging technology like blockchain is ultimately going to be used and if there is even a technical solution to it or if it's something that we're just going to have to deal with in the same way one might have to deal with hurricanes or bad weather. Yeah, it's definitely a systemic disaster area of work, I guess. Cybersecurity is an essential component of state security and it's essential component of government security and it's an essential component of our personal security. So it's something that runs along in the background. And I think we only really think about it when things go wrong, but there is a pretty robust international system there of, of really good cooperation between governments and companies in terms of keeping our information flowing at least um, and relatively secure. So just to wind things back, there's a concept which we've written about previously called hyperbolic discounting, which is where I believe consumers forego long-term benefits for short-term rewards when it comes to sharing their data. Could you talk a little bit about that concept or maybe define it better than what I've done? I don't know if I can define it better than what you've done. It's what they call the marshmallow experiment is the sort of the traditional um, test of this, which is do you want one now or do you want two later? And consumers, when it comes to consuming um, social media in particular, because of the way these technologies are designed, they lean into psychological principles whereby we just become like not necessarily addicted, but we really enjoy the hit of the next video or the next clip or the next like or the next notification. Um, it just, it really is for the human brain. It's just very, very rewarding to engage with technology. And I don't know that it's necessarily even a case of, is that a situation where we gain more later if we don't do that? But the notion of hyperbolic discounting is, I think there is a maybe lack of awareness on the part of some people, and this is in no way attributing any kind of blame to be very clear about this, but there is a lack of awareness of how quickly we get sucked into 
our social media, how quickly our time gets sucked. I know myself, there was a phase last year during lockdown where I set timers around my social media use on my phone because it was getting out of hand. <laughs> We've all fallen into that trap, but that really is the basis of hyperbolic discounting. I think it also goes to the fact that um, and, and the question earlier on about what are you gaining? You're gaining a service, but what are you giving away? You're not just giving away your data, you're giving away your time. Um, our time is precious and people are becoming a lot more mindful about how they engage with, um, I'm thinking specifically about social media here, but people are becoming much more mindful and much more conscious and mindful about how they are engaging. Yeah, and again, it could be a cliche, but time is money. Many of the people listening to this podcast might um, charge a pretty high amount of money per hour for their services. They would think nothing of spending three hours on TikTok or four hours on Reddit or you know any multitude of time on Instagram. They wouldn't expect to do a day's work for less than, say, several hundred pounds. It's slightly ridiculous in a way if you think about it. The, People get worried their time so easily, but that they wouldn't get worried anything else so easily. I mean, yeah, it's so mind blowing when you start to think about it. It's not new, though. Think about how 20 years ago, that's how TV worked. We would sit there all evening and watch all the ads on TV. It's exactly the same model. It's your time is what's valuable. It's definitely moved into a space, though, whereby online services are the new advertising world, if you will. And that's where a lot of the money is coming from. It's the advertising. So I don't know about you, I find it much better to have relevant ads, whereas before I would have ads about lots of things that would be totally relevant to me. So we are being spoon fed a lot more for sure. And we are moving into more of an echo chamber world. But yeah, it's not a new issue. And um, I'm not even going to call it problem. It's just not a new issue, but it's much more sophisticated than it ever was before. I think it takes more effort to become aware of it than it was in the past. It's less obvious. So moving on, another quite big question to which I don't think there may be an easy answer, but how did the world effectively moving online in March 2020 impact data rights issues and the subject we're talking about now? Yeah, oh gosh, where to start with this? This was huge. So at the consumer level, I think we all just became so aware of how reliant we are on online anything. People who were fortunate enough to have jobs where they could work from home and sit behind a screen and Zoom all day were in a much more economically stable position than people who had to go out and do jobs where they had to interact with people. It was a really unfortunate side effect. We also saw a massive boom in the technology economy. You look at the stock prices for the last year, they're absolutely mind-blowing. And at the same time, regulators moved into an interesting space that they would have moved into anyway. And I think this is worth calling out. So, and I'm going to go back to the EU example here, because whether we like it or not, the EU is the powerhouse of policymaking and legislation around technology and around data. And back in 2018, the GDPR came out. And then in 2019, you had this, um, there was a, a change in, in commission and the digital single market work program wrapped up. And for anyone who is really interested in this, there's a lot you can read into it. I'm sure there are plenty of people on the call more expert than, than I am in this area. But you have this package of legislative measures that landed 2019, 2020. Uh, you have the Digital Services Act, which is trying to update the e-commerce directive, which is around consumers are engaging online. And there's a lot of uh, competition style issues in there. You have the Data Governance Act that's trying to create common data spaces for sharing of personal data to help cities, to help Europe just gain more insights. You have this new Data Act that's going to come out that's going to potentially affect 
pretty much every company in the world, if not directly by default, just because of the fact that companies don't tend to, certainly multinational companies don't tend to develop specific services for particular regions. Um, it tends to be a global rollout of technology, particularly when it's really cutting edge technology. So you have this really interesting space that's happening anyway, where you have this raft of really sophisticated legislation that's being prepared. You have Brexit, which is a really interesting space, and you have the UK ICO coming out now this year and saying, let's update things, let's move a bit beyond it. So you are seeing a lot of appetite in Europe and in the UK to change the status quo. Similarly, in the United States over the last couple of years, we've had a raft of privacy legislation at state level. You have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is not the GDPR, but it's very, very similar. And it gives consumers in California, which is where I live, rights that are very similar to rights that people in the UK and in the EU have. And you're seeing legislation in different states. You're also seeing, I think it was yesterday or just earlier this week, Rwanda has its data act is ready. Um, Brazil, China has legislation. So you're just seeing this boom in legislation all over the world. That has nothing to do with COVID-19, but it is interesting to see how these things are happening in parallel and the sort of the systemic effects of both together. So you have, on the one hand, legislators really leaning into this entire space and saying we need to get a lot smarter about how we are regulating data. People are a lot more reliant on this data ecosystem and you have companies that are leaning into this world making a lot more money. I think the key lesson is that it's really just put it front and center in all of our consciousness right now. Whereas before, I think we would have seen it as more of a niche issue. It's a lot easier to communicate with people that data is important. Before they might've said, yeah, it is, but it's not what I'm really concerned about. Now everybody is concerned about it. Yeah, because we're no longer dealing with the regulation of a small slither of human experience. In the late eighties, if you're one of the lucky few who had access to the internet, it would represent maybe 2% of the daily experience, maybe five, if you were someone employed at the university. Now for someone like myself who works from home, who was uh, quite quiet on weekdays, represents maybe 90% of my real life experience. It's almost like I'm surfing the real world sometimes. So these issues have just become on-amount, something more important over the course of the pandemic, when the real world receded and the online world sort of rose to take its place. Completely, completely. And it's only going to get, I'm not going to use the term worse or better, it's only going to become more important. Everything in our lives is interconnected with the digital economy. So getting this right has become not just important, but urgent. We are just really seeing how amazing technology is and how much it improves our lives. But we also see that, I mentioned the corner shop earlier on, but we also see that sort of the traditional companies that depending on what age you are, you might have grown up with or your parents grew up with or you used to interact with them on a daily basis and you don't think of them as technology companies. But when you sit back and you compare sort of a big multinational that's not tech specific with what we think about as big tech companies, there's not that much difference in how they operate. There's not that much difference in how important data is to how they do business and how they are profitable yes the business models are different per se but if you said to me is data important to airlines I don't think I'd be saying no I think it's really really important to absolutely everybody and we've seen you mentioned data breaches earlier on we also see the the impact of outages on, on our systems even things like the national grid our energy reliance supply chains you saw how supply chains really really broke down during COVID-19 
and more sophisticated solutions had to be deployed to get supplies where they needed to go. And all of that relies on technology, all of that relies on technical infrastructure, and ultimately all of that is using data. So I'm just going to throw quite a difficult question at your hands, so apologies. No pressure. <laughs> Do you think there's any uh, type of historical precedent for what's going on in terms of the mass scale harvesting of human data? I don't know that I'd use the term mass scale harvesting of human data. I think mass use of all sorts of data. One of the things I just realized is that in having this conversation, we started out talking about consumer rights. And that really is in the space of data about people. But there's a lot of data that has nothing to do with people that just makes the world go round. It's how hot is it today or how many cars are on the road or um, is there enough water in this particular territory? Whatever it might be, data really does make the world go round. Is this unprecedented? Absolutely. So um, I mentioned at the beginning of the call, the center I work in, which is part of the World Economic Forum, is called the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And we're all aware of the earlier industrial revolutions, but this is basically another industrial revolution. We are moving to a phase where it's no longer people and technology just interacting with each other. And it's really around how you see technology just becoming intrinsic to our lives it's no longer just a tool that we use it's a tool that we need because we have built our systems this way because we've built our societies this way we've built our businesses this way and we build our lives this way and that is hugely exciting and also hugely terrifying so yes this is absolutely unprecedented so i think um there's probably newer statistics than this but as of january 2021 the amount of data that was being produced, new data every single day, and that's not just personal data, any kind of data, is 2.5 quintillion bytes per day. That's crazy. If when you think about maybe an email that you send is like maybe a megabyte, and that would be a pretty big one. The amount of data that's new is just insane. And then data has this really interesting character. It's not a finite resort. It can be used and reused and combined and reused. So the size of the data ecosystem is one of these things that's, I think, philosophically quite mind-blowing. But I think that regardless of how you see it, nobody can deny that it's important. Nobody can deny that it is unprecedented. So unprecedented harvesting of any kind of data is absolutely true, but it's more than harvesting its use, its importance, the value of that data in our lives every day, whatever we're doing. So... Um... Maybe to pull things uh, towards a more positive note, how optimistic are you about the topic of consumer data rights in general? And do you think that consumers and governments have the muscle to be able to take on big tech by themselves? Well, hugely excited that people are taking it seriously. I think that's the first place to start. If we want to be really lean into sort of the good news that's happening around all of this. People are savvier, people are interested, people are educated, people want control of their information. We saw the harm of disinformation and there are many, many different news stories in the last year or two where see how things can go badly wrong when data is misused and is used for harmful purposes. People care and that's a really important place to start. People care and people are able to hold governments and businesses accountable for what action they want to see happen. So we are seeing all of this new legislation. I mentioned all of this new data protection and privacy legislation right like right across the world. We've seen a lot of high profile cases recently where different people are unhappy with how certain cases around data breaches or misuse of data have been prosecuted and maybe 
unhappiness around how some of those have gone. But regardless of whether they went well or whether they didn't go well, there is an accountability there that wasn't there before. So I think a couple of things, people care more. People are able to hold governments and businesses accountable. So they are accountable in a way that they never have been before. And as I mentioned earlier on, technology is now providing some really interesting solutions that might be able to bridge that gap given a little bit more time. Certainly in terms of citizens' information, data rights information is really front and center on a lot of different citizens' information websites wherever you are. So it's easier than ever to get information. And of course, ironically, the online world provides just a raft of information for those that are interested. So it's a really, really exciting space right now. And things are definitely moving in favor of consumers for sure. There's no doubt about that. So uh, thanks so much for the time, Anne. I think that's a good place to end things. But I've really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks so much for your valuable time. Um, Likewise, thank you so much for having me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Will. You really put me on the spot on some tricky questions, but hopefully I've been able to provide some insights. Thanks so much, Anne. And to our listeners, goodbye. <laughs>